0: The Old Testament lesson is from Malachi, chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will stumble, and that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, And you will go out and leap like calves released from the stall. Then you will trample down the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I do these things, says the Lord Almighty. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. This is the word of the Lord.
1: The New Testament reading is from the first letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you, and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. This is the word of the Lord.
2: The book of the prophet Malachi. He lived about a hundred years after the Israelites had returned from their Babylonian exile. And his message was directed to the people who had been living in Jerusalem for some time now. The temple had been rebuilt a while ago and things were not going well. Just remember the stories from Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, when the Israelites first returned from exile, their hopes were high. They would return and rebuild their lives and the temple. All of the great promises of the prophets would come true. The Messiah would come and set up God's kingdom over a unified Israel and over the nations and bring justice and peace for all. But that's not What happened? The Israelites who repopulated the city proved to be just as unfaithful to God as their ancestors, resulting in poverty and injustice. And so in Malachi, we find out just how corrupt this new generation has become. The book's designed as a series of disputes and most sections begin with God saying something, making a claim or an accusation, and then Israel will disagree or question God's statement. And then God will respond and offer the last word. This happens six times. In the first three disputes God exposes Israel's corruption and in the final three disputes he confronts their corruption. And the overall impression you get from these arguments and disputes is that the exile fundamentally didn't change anything in the people. Israel's hearts are as hard as ever. The first dispute starts when God says that he still loves his covenant people despite their failures. And Israel rudely objects, saying, How have you shown us any love? And so God reminds them of how he graciously chose the family of Jacob, their ancestor, to become the carrier of God's covenant promises instead of Esau, his brother, and the family that came from him, who eventually came to ruin. Remember the stories from Genesis and the book of Obadiah. And so, right from this first dispute, Israel is exposed as suspicious doubting God's love and faithfulness. The second dispute exposes a problem with Israel's second temple. God accuses the people of despising and defiling the temple. And the people fire back, how have we despised you? And so God responds by focusing on the people, how they are bringing shamefully lame offerings of these sick, blemished animals that show that they don't value or honor their God. But it is not just the people, it is the priests too who run the temple. They not only tolerate but participate in these corrupt forms of worship. From top to bottom, God's people have proven faithless. In the third dispute, God accuses the Israelite men of treachery against him and their wives, which of course they deny. And God exposes the toxic combination of idolatry and divorce taking place. You have Israelite men marrying non-Israelite women and then adopting the worship of their wives' ancestral gods into their homes. Remember the story from Nehemiah chapter 13. And so Malachi connects this to a wave of men divorcing their wives for no good reason. And the people are all fine with this and Malachi says no it's a betrayal of your covenant with God. And so Malachi transitions into the second set of disputes that confront Israel's rebellion. So the fourth dispute begins with the Israelites accusing God of neglect saying where is the God of justice? They see injustice and corruption abounding and God seems to do nothing. So God responds by saying that he'll send a messenger who will prepare the people for God's personal return in the day of the Lord. He will come like fire to purify his people and to remove idolatry and sexual immorality and injustice so that only the faithful remnant is left to become his people. In the fifth dispute, God calls the people to turn back to him, to which the people say, how can we turn back? And so God confronts their selfishness. He shows how they've stopped offering a tithe of their income to the temple. Now, that word tithe just means one-tenth. It's the amount of their income and produce that the Israelites were to annually donate to support the temple and its priests, the practices laid out in different parts of the Torah. Now, we know from Malachi and from the book of Nehemiah that the people were neglecting this response. and so the temple was falling into disrepair and so God confronts them. He says he wants to bless them with abundance but only if they are going to be faithful. In the final dispute the people accuse God and say that it is pointless to serve him. They observe wicked prideful people succeeding in life and God does nothing. And God's response for the first time in the book is not a speech but rather a short story about the faithful remnant in Israel. People who fear the Lord and they love to get together and talk about how to honor God and serve him. And so God orders that a scroll of remembrance be written for these people so that they can read the scroll and remember God's character and promises. Malachi, he's reflecting here on the divine gift of the scriptures, how they point us to the past to remember what God has done in order to inspire faithfulness and hope for the future which leads to the conclusion of the book. It picks up and develops the imagery of the fourth dispute about the coming day of the Lord, but it develops it further. God says that He's appointed a day of purifying judgment that will consume the wicked from among his people. But what the conclusion adds is the future of the faithful remnant, because for them the day of the Lord is not a threat, it is a cause for joy. It will be like the rays of the rising sun that bring healing and life and hope for the future. And so Malachi's disputes come to a close, but there's still a bit more to this book. The final three verses, they're not part of the disputes, and actually they function like a concluding appendix, bringing closure not just to Malachi, but to the whole collection of the Torah and the prophets. So first, the reader is called to remember the law or the Torah of my servant Moses. This recalls the story and the laws of the covenant that you find in the first five books of the Bible. But then we hear this summary of the books of the prophets. I will send the prophet Elijah before the day of the Lord who will restore the hearts of God's people. So this conclusion, it summarizes the Torah and the prophets as a unified story that points to the future. Israel was redeemed by God and then they betrayed Him through their rebellion and hard hearts breaking the laws of the Torah. But the scriptures anticipate a future day when God's going to send a new prophet, a Moses, a new Elijah who will restore God's people and heal their hard hearts. Remember all of the promises from Deuteronomy and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And so this concluding appendix presents the scriptures as a divine gift to read and to ponder and to pray over. They tell the truth about the human condition, about our selfishness and our sin. But they also announce God's promise that one day he would send a messenger and then show up personally to confront evil, to restore his people and bring his healing justice. And it's that future hope that Malachi and the Torah and all of the prophets are about.
3: Good morning, Sherman Street. My name is Shannon Jamal Hollimans, and I'm one of the pastors on staff at Oakdale Park Church. It's a pleasure to worship with you this morning. Our text for today comes from the Book of Malachi. We'll be looking specifically at chapter four and also referencing 1 Thessalonians, the first chapter. Now, the Book of Malachi itself begins with the line the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel. Now the NIV translation softens it a bit and says prophecy. The NRSV calls it an oracle, but the Hebrew word literally means burden. And it's a fitting description for the book of Malachi. The book that carries within it a burden. The book even ends with the word curse. And as you saw in the video from the Bible project, This book comes to us from a period of time, roughly 100 years after the exile of the children of Israel in Babylon. And this was a message to the children of Israel who were now living in Jerusalem during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. They'd returned home, but they weren't living in ways that were necessarily faithfully reflecting God's faithfulness to them. They'd become corrupt. Poverty was commonplace. Injustice was a way of life, and God wasn't pleased. God had called out the children of Israel, calling them out of where they were to live in ways that were faithful and just, to show the world just how faithful and just God is. And they were failing at that. The format of the book is sort of a back-and-forth conversation between God and Israel. God says something, Israel disagrees with God back and forth. Six times this pattern is repeated. Three times God exposes the people for being corrupt and unjust, and three times God confronts them right in their face about it. To summarize, God says in the very first chapter, I have loved you. And the people reply to God, how have you loved us? God says, I've called you to worship me faithfully You can't seriously expect me to think what you're doing right now is worshipful. The people retort, we do worship you. We go to your house faithfully. We pray to you. But you don't listen to us. You don't respond to us. And you can almost see God shaking his head, responding to them. How can you be faithful to me when you can't even be faithful to one another? God sounds much like the weary parent of a toddler or maybe even a teenager. God is saying, I picked you, you out of all people, but you exhaust me. I give you everything I have and I only ask for a small portion back in return. Yet you steal that from me and you resent me saying I don't even give you enough. God is looking at the faces of these people people that God chose, that God called out because God loved them, and made promises to them, with love and hope in God's eyes, but in return is seeing apathy, stubborn indifference, and even outright rejection. But God persists. The day of justice is coming. We read that in chapter 4. A day when corruption will be scorched by the pure heat of God's justice. And it won't be pretty. I used to watch this television show called Game of Thrones. I assume assume that some of you have seen it. If you're familiar with the series, you know that it's set in a fictional kingdom during what seems to be medieval-like times. Men are on horses, women are in long dresses, perched in castles. There are dragons and intensely corrupt rulers and long-standing rivalries. In some ways, it's not all that different from the ancient Middle East where the, New Test- or the Old Testament text is taking place this morning. Well, there was this character in Game of Thrones that viewers really disliked because he was designed to be dislikable. His name was Joffrey. Joffrey's father died when he was a teenager and he became king. And the viewers could see trouble coming when this self-centered, egotistical child himself was suddenly given immense power over others. Not only did Joffrey fail to show anyone compassion, he was just plain mean. He enjoyed watching others suffer. He taunted and tormented them. His behavior was erratic, unpredictable, and people were terrified of him. I think that sometimes we read passages like this morning's from the fourth chapter of Malachi and we see God as a sort of Joffrey, only interested in receiving the glory and the recognition for God's self, harming people without concern for their well-being as long as it suited God's purposes, showing favor maybe to those who have something to give back to God, but someone who's hard to understand or erratic violent or even even mean think of how we talk about god's redemption sometimes while it is sufficient for all we talk about it like it's given to a select few the chosen ones who get to dispense it as we see fit we turn ourselves into kings we try to manipulate the very word of god to serve our self-interest at the expense of others My father's sister, my aunt, passed away in Lebanon last week. Five years ago, at the age of 63, she was diagnosed with dementia. But as her physical health began to rapidly decline, last year her doctors decided to do a scan, where they discovered that she had a brain tumor. At that point, it was too late to do anything about it. And as is the case for so many around the world, Her poverty determined her medical care, which led to her early death at the age of 68. My aunt was a Muslim, as is my father who lives here in Grand Rapids. When I think about my father's funeral someday, about possibly having it in the Christian Reformed Church of my childhood, I recoil. Nothing sounds less comforting to me, actually because that's where I was taught that people like my dad are going to hell. That is where I learned that what matters most, what matters maybe more than anything, is being right. It's not always fun growing up the kid of a Muslim in the Christian Reformed Church, but not because of my loving Muslim father. Because of the consistent pressure from Christians for me to share a testimony of rejecting my father's culture to embrace my mother's, like his was wrong and hers was right, because she was a Christian. We Christians have a tendency to see things in black and white, in right and wrong, like God's word is static, and we just need to grasp this one correct interpretation to understand all things for all times like the gospel is something we could even grasp or hold on to or package to distribute to others as we see fit. Who's trying to be King Joffrey here? Is it God or is it us? Read what God is saying here in the fourth chapter of Malachi. God will deliver justice, not us. God will destroy all that is wrong with the world and make it right. And God invites those of us who trust in God to follow God into it. Not as the ones who are bringing the justice ourselves, but as the ones who get to enjoy the fruit of it, who get to dance at all that God has done people are not going to be damned for following for sorry for failing to follow a prescription of what it means to follow Jesus. People will not be rejected because there's only so much good news to go around or so many people that God intends to save. Damnation is the fruit of apathy. The fruit of rejecting God and the lives of those created in God's very image Damnation is not something God hurls at you for not getting your beliefs right. Damnation happens when we choose to cling to the idols of power and control at the expense of God's gracious good news, that there is life abundant in following Jesus Christ. The story is as old as Eden. Hell is separation from God. And hell is not imposed by a God who hates people created in God's very image. Hell is real because God's justice demands it. And I don't know about you, but I find that to be incredibly good news because it is just, because God is just and God is merciful. And God's justice will rise like the sun, healing those of us who've been hurt and bringing us to our feet to dance. And God says here, remember the law of Moses. Remember the law because it was a gift. It's not a burden for us to bear, but good news for our flourishing. And guess what? God declares to the children of Israel that they will still receive more good news. God promises to send them a new Elijah, a new prophet, to restore and to heal, and that was Jesus Christ. That is how the law is good news for us. What was the burden of the prophets is now freeing, especially for those of us who have been told that it is bad news for us. Because of Jesus Christ, the new Elijah, right relationships with God and with each other are possible. These are the kind of relationships we read about in 1 Thessalonians. Relationships where we pray for each other, where we encourage each other, where we listen to each other's stories and are inspired to love others better and to do what they're doing. I find it incredibly encouraging that in our relationships with those who don't follow Jesus, God is not asking us to be in control. We are not chosen because we are better than anyone or because God likes us more or God wants to save us and not them. We are chosen by God to demonstrate God's love to those who need it, just like us. God sits on the throne as the judge. We don't have to. The gospel is good news for all of us. The gospel is good news for the millions of Muslims around the world who just ended the season of Ramadan, of fasting and prayer to try and see God's face. The gospel is good news for LGBTQ Christians who have been told the church isn't big enough for them. The gospel is good news for kids who are being taunted and bullied, For those who are being rejected and ignored. The gospel is good news for those of us who have been sitting in the pews of churches for our entire lives and sometimes wonder if there is even place for us there anymore. We have a privilege to be able to testify to the good news of what God has done in our lives. Friends, it's time to take ourselves off the throne. We're not in charge. God is. Thanks be to God. And God is still speaking to us. The gift of the Holy Spirit means that we are never alone, even when worshiping in physical spaces far from one another, because God is here, faithfully listening, speaking to us, Committed to fulfilling the promises made generations ago to be our God so that we can be God's people. To provide all that we need to worship God in righteousness and truth. One final note. I love pop music. I'm not ashamed to say it. I love the ways that it speaks to the masses the ways that the tunes and the lyrics powerfully resonate with generations of people because they speak of things that are central to the human condition, to love, to fear, to rejection, and to joy. One of my favorite pop artists right now is the Korean pop band called BTS. In March, BTS performed for the Grammy Awards if you saw the Grammys, you know that they were a bit weird this year. <laughs> Pandemic protocols di- dis- dictated that attendance be limited and that performances be relegated to the stage in an empty room at the convention center in Los Angeles. BTS opened their performance beneath a large Grammy shaped cone, like an old school gramophone, a record player. On the sound stage, there was no one in the room just the large gramophone and a floral arrangement hanging from the ceiling, framing the shot. Now, if you know BTS, you know that everything they do is visually dynamic, and this was no exception. The singing was live. The movements of the camera were carefully orchestrated to show the band members' smiles as they danced and as they sang, grabbing viewers, drawing them in, and the vocalists continued to sing as they took the show backstage, traveling room by room and up a staircase. The song would move line by line between vocalists as they sort of passed it to one another. And as they got to the top of the staircase, they opened a door and the camera pans. And you see that they're on the roof of a building. And then you realize They're not performing at the Grammy stage in Los Angeles, but they're in Seoul, South Korea. You see water in the distance, you see skyscrapers around them, and they're on this lit up helicopter pad. And suddenly this performance is so much cooler. It's so much bigger than anyone who was watching at home had even realized. The choreography, the lights, the spectacle, were now even bigger than they had seemed when they started. One cultural commentator wrote, BTS's Dynamite Grammy performance was so big it needed a skyscraper. Friends, I think our God is like that. I think our God is full of surprises. I think our God's love is so much bigger than we can often imagine because we are so limited in our understanding. We as the church have been given this incredible privilege of stewarding the good news of Jesus Christ, of sharing it with the world. Like the children of Israel, our calling is to reflect, to reflect God's love. And people, we are called to do that now in our everyday lives. It's not something for the far off future. It's not something that we have to get our act together first before we can do well because God is here with us. God's spirit is moving among us and God is calling us into these spaces, these unknown spaces to be God's hands and feet, to participate in what God is doing and the justice that God is bringing in this world. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God of heaven and earth, we thank you. We thank you for who you are, We thank you that we can trust that not only are you incredibly powerful, but you are also incredibly good. That your love for us transcends what we can even comprehend. And we pray that as we go into this week, we would remember that your law is not a burden. That your gospel truth is good news for us and for those around us. And that you invite us to expand our imaginations, to follow you into this world where you are leading us, God. Grow our imaginations and help us follow you faithfully, closely, and deeply. We pray all this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Go in peace.